Hey everybody, this is Vesna Luca and you're listening to Suma and Friends, the show for people with the courage to care for a wiser future. On this show today, Tarek Fancy, a former Wall Street investor turned non-profit founder. He's the CEO of Rumi, an education tech company using innovative mobile-based microlearning to bring free digital learning and to close learning gaps. And with us is also Rainer Indal, founder and managing partner of Suma Equity. So today we'll talk about how we can reform capitalism to address important environmental and social challenges with concrete action. So Tarek, a year ago you launched an essay, a manifesto, sharing how you had gone from evangelizing sustainable investing for the world's largest investment firm, BlackRock, to actually criticize the sustainable investing as a dangerous placebo that harms the public interest. And in doing so, you literally challenged business leaders to prove you wrong. And you, you also gave fuel to people that are already skeptics. So I'm curious, what, why did you do it? And, and uh, why did you sound this alarm? And, and what was the reactions you got? And what impact did you get out of it? Well, so first of all, thanks for having me on here. And, and I'm happy that we're having this conversation because I think these are the kinds of, of difficult conversations that we need to have quickly because we're running out of time and the business community has an important role to play in solving social and environmental challenges. Um, and to answer your question, look, I, I, you know, I left BlackRock on good terms. It was really the passing of my former father-in-law and sort of the need to do a bunch of family business stuff that led me to leave. I transitioned out over six months. It was on very good terms. I had a going away party. And none of my message is even specific to BlackRock. I mean, they know that, that the argument I'm making is about the system. And the reason that I, I felt the need to sound the alarm on it was that you know, while I was there, I had kind of reached the conclusion reasonably quickly that, you know, that most of this is marketing and PR of what was going on in the space. Not everything, but the majority was. And it was things like, you know, all these great promises that, you know, to look at ESG factors, but of course these are processes that are governed by legal obligations like fiduciary duty. So again, I mean, it's not that different than anything they were doing. You know, you have a bunch of public markets funds that are kind of rearranging baskets of public shares, you know, to get higher fees. It all became clear to me, really, that there's very little reason to believe that this has any real world impact. Uh, and no one was even trying to figure that out, to be honest, because, you know, that's they're not on, you know, firms like that aren't on a hook to provide that. It's sort of just a, a marketing direction that's hinted in the materials. And so I remember telling a friend that I concluded that it was like giving wheatgrass juice to a cancer patient. You know, the cancer, which let's say is climate change, among other social ills, is slowly spreading in the body of the planet or, or its people. And, you know, wheatgrass juice is a nice green and well-marketed, you know, health product, but there's no reason to believe it'll stop cancer. And and so to me, I mean, I thought, well, this is not harmful, but it's not helping. So I don't really want to be doing it. And the only reason I ended up back there was because I had left and founded Rumi before that. And in four years, it had grown really fast. It became a, you know, an HBS case study. And all of that sort of led to them saying, hey, look, you know, you're an investor. You, you left for a few years and did something with a social bottom line. And this is a chance to sort of merge the two. And, you know, the reason I wrote the paper was actually because after I left, I started to realize that I was wrong. That it wasn't like giving wheatgrass to a cancer patient. It's like giving wheatgrass to a cancer patient. And then you realize that the cancer patient is so enthralled by the promises you're making about this wheatgrass juice that they actually delay chemotherapy. Right. Because let's be honest, I mean, no one wants chemo 
just like no one wants difficult government regulation that's going to make, you know, our flights and burgers more expensive, even if sacrifices was required. And so, I, you know, really what I started noticing was that I knew that it wasn't helping, but I had the vantage point of trying to integrate ESG considerations into the largest pool of assets, you know, available in capitalism. And I knew it didn't work, but if no one else knew it didn't work, then my concern was that um, we may waste a few years, right, on at best green wishing, right, that sounds nice, but won't really work. And so, the, you know, really before I went public, the first thing I did was I worked on a study with a university in Canada just to understand, is it true that it is actually delaying regulation? Is it delaying chemo? And we found that the more you show people headlines uh, coming out of the business world around ESG stuff, for example, Larry Fink at BlackRock, my old boss saying, you know, that we need to have companies that have social purpose and, you know, and so on and so forth about integrating ESG, about climate risks and portfolios. You actually find that the population, first of all, they don't understand what helps and what doesn't help, right? They don't know if divestment is good or bad or this, that, which makes it very unlikely that individual action will aggregate into the kind of answers we need if most people don't actually even know it helps. But the second and more worrying thing was that people who saw those headlines around, you know, ESG and social purpose and all would later say that we don't need government regulation, right? So if you think of capitalism and competitive markets a bit like competitive sports, it's a bit like saying that if you advertise too aggressively around good sportsmanship being the answer to cleaning up a dirty sport, even though, you know, that doesn't, hasn't worked for 20 years, you can mislead people into saying that we don't need the referees to come in and clean up the game, even if that's effectively what all of our experts are telling us. We need systemic regulations across the board. They need to be mandatory, not voluntary, and so on. And so I concluded that, you know, that this was actually hurting. But the final trigger for me, to be honest, to, to go public about it was watching the, the reaction of business leaders to COVID. So here they were saying that stakeholder capitalism, right, which is pretty much the good sportsmanship analogy where, you know, you don't need to regulate companies because they're going to magically do what's in the public interest by themselves because sort of you know, this idea that it's always in their interest too, so we can rely on that. You know, that idea and those sort of, you know, set of ideas were really just another free market self-corrects thesis, right? And they were delaying regulation. And it was all to address a systemic curve that science told us that we needed to flatten, right? Which was, you know, emissions. And then all of a sudden the pandemic hits and here you have a systemic crisis where science tells us that we need to flatten the curve, right? It's, you know, we all contribute, we're all affected just like emissions, but with COVID infections, the incubation period is much faster, right? With, you know, climate change takes decades with COVID, it takes weeks. And suddenly, all the business leaders who believe in free market theories to flatten curves suddenly said, turned around and said, no, 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 we need the government to help, like, you know, close the schools, make masks mandatory indoors, right? Restrict travel. These are all the right things to do because epidemiologists told us that, that you know, that's how you're going to get systemic change. And, you, and I noticed that the, the same leaders who, for a long-term crisis that was not aligned with their short-term incentives, they were quite happy to, you know, really just kind of kick the can down the road even against the advice of expert economists and Nobel Prize winning economists. But for COVID, you know, they were sort of saying, oh, no, that that sense it, you know, we need to do something. Your metaphor to the cancer patient is brilliant. I've also been increasingly worried about how the whole world is moving into sustainable investing. And it's over a trillion dollar and more that is uh, responsible investment in sustainable investment. And, you know, I don't see the outcomes of all of that. So so there isn't a much change happening. So we are sort of labeling 
a large pool of money now being sustainable. And that is giving hope to the world that, yeah, we're fixing the problem. Now we're putting all these trillions of dollars into solving our problems. And what you're calling out is that, yeah, we are maybe going in the right direction, but we haven't really started solving the issues. So I think it was really courageous and great of you to come out and uh, and tell it like it is. It was a tricky decision, but you know, I came to the conclusion that I had a unique ability to spark a debate that's mainly because of my prior role and experience and that if I stepped into that position, it would it would sort of shock a few people and rock the boat. And I think, you know, I mean, I, I obviously I reached out to BlackRock before I did it, you know, and I, t- and I told them honestly, I said, you know, to the to senior executive committee, I said, look, I, I enjoyed working with you. You know, I have a good personal relationship with people. But I said that the, the messages coming out of the firm and again, out of the whole industry are becoming misleading in a way that I think actually disadvantages their own younger employees, right? Because if you think about it, you know, if you have a short-term system, an economic system that particularly around the E is exploiting the environment and finite natural resources, you know, for short-term gain and creating a long-term problem, on one hand, you can look at that as short-termism, and that's definitely a problem. And I know that Larry and BlackRock know that. It's not just a collective, you know, we all lose out, you know, we all messed this up and now the polar bears are suffering. At some point, it becomes less about like, what do we need to do and more about who's going to pay for it. And every single day that we delay with the system that's short term oriented, you know, as BlackRock would know, that actually disadvantages their own younger employees, right? Because if you're Larry Fink and you're 70, you're at the top of the structure and you benefit the most from the system today. It's, of course, borrowing against the, you know, the, the, the environment and other things that future generations will pay for. And that's really his younger employees, right? The 22-year-old entry-level employee, BlackRock, benefits the least from the current system is the most at the risk of the consequences of inaction. And so for me, it's a sort of debate that needs to happen in the business community. And in large part, I think it's because I, I don't know that you can rely on politicians to make the changes required, particularly given that this is a problem with leakage, right? So, you know, you need... You can't just have one country do the right thing. Canada and Sweden can't do the right thing. Otherwise, first of all, it won't make a big difference. Second of all, it'll be politically impossible in countries, you know, if you're doing too much and all of your competitors in other countries are not. And so you need a concerted effort. And it becomes very difficult when the biggest country, the U.S., you know, has a political system that, you know, is obviously, let's just say, has its issues right now. And where, you know, politicians are so motivated by campaign finance because there's so much money in the system that they're not likely to challenge powerful interests, right? Like I, I was doing a, a talk at somewhere in the US and someone said, they said, listen, wh- you know, why are you calling out business leaders for having a short-term outlook? Like politicians also have a short-term outlook, right? They're just trying to get reelected in the next few years and not many of them want to go out and, uh, you know, and sort of suggest that the real changes experts say we need because they would require sacrifice, you know, and it'd be sacrificed today for a benefit. Yeah you know, decades from now, potentially, and that's not a vote winner. And my answer to them was, listen, you're right, politicians and business leaders are short term. The difference is in the jurisdictions that matter the most, the politicians are begging for the money and the business leaders have the money, right? And that's why I think it's a debate that, you know, it shouldn't really be from the outside where, you know, anti-capitalists or people, you know, it it should be a conversation the capitalists themselves embrace, because if we don't, what you see happening is that younger generations are actually losing faith in capitalism entirely. What were the reactions to you when you published this? Because I'd spent 
years working in the industry, you know, in the 2000s, I was working at sort of hedge funds and private equity stuff. And I had a sense for how messages spread on Wall Street. And one of the things I always remembered is that, you know, if you write the best research paper in the world, they're probably not going to read it. I mean, at most, like the people on the street will read like, you know, the bullet point or the summary takeaways at the top of the report. But if you write a story that has gossip and intrigue, you'll get most of them to read it. I'm not a writer. I actually took a Malcolm Gladwell masterclass. I don't know if you've heard of those, those online masterclass things, but it was in the pandemic, so I had some time. And I decided to write it as a story because I, I realized that if it was a story, then more people would be likely to read it and it could have the chance of going viral. And so in the end, that's actually what happened. It started spreading widely. And the response I got was a mix of a lot of, a lot of media interest, right? Because it was you know an interesting story and so on. Uh, a ton of inbound behind the scenes from people in the industry saying, thank you for, you know, for saying this. And, you know, the, you know, the, this is a hot, tough debate we need to have. And, and, you know, it can't be governed by the PR teams at firms, which I say that actually out of sympathy for people in the industry, because I know that they can't say what I'm saying, right? Like any more than I could have said it while I was at BlackRock, which obviously I couldn't have. And what surprised me a little bit was that people on the other side who I thought would have responded didn't. You know, I, the goal was to get accountability and spark a debate. I mean, I told this to BlackRock when I when I flagged it to them before going public that, like, look, the goal is to spark a debate. The Jamie Diamonds and Larry Finks of the world, like, on one hand, you could say that maybe they never heard about it and they're really busy. I, I'm pretty sure that's not the case. They're, they're well aware of it, but it's just not in their interest to have a debate. That part was a bit disappointing because it's hard to change the narrative if you can't surface and hold to account the dominant one that's backed by, you know, billions of dollars of marketing. You're telling the narrative and the story, which a lot of us see. You know, everyone that works with sustainable investing and, and ESG and impact wants to be part of make, you know, changing the world. But we're seeing so much greenwashing. We're, we're seeing so many things that sort of is bothering us. When you call it out, it, it, it's sort of, you know, how do you respond to that? People were just probably caught in a dilemma. Um, I was thinking about uh, writing a reply uh, on it and because I think it's a very important debate to have. And that's why I'm super happy that we are having this discussion uh, now. Because I think what needs to happen, what can happen is that, you know, there's a bunker mentality where everyone just shuts up, shuts shop and then says nothing. And that has happened a lot in the ESG space. I mean, a few months ago, you would have seen this guy at HSBC in London you know, who had a responsible investing and made some comments about believing that climate risks are overstated. If you actually read between the lines what he's saying, he wasn't denying climate change. He wasn't even denying that there'll be economic impacts. He was saying that the, you know, the financial services or the, the risk to most portfolios is minimal. In fact, the point he makes in it is that the real risk is actually that we're smart enough to regulate, you know, and internalize the externality through like a carbon tax, because then you would actually see markets get hit because, you know, high emitters would, would have to pay for it. But if you don't make that happen and you just wait for physical risks, I mean, some of them are in places where in North Dakota, where actually, you know, climate change will increase GDP, right? Like there's not like they have a clear incentive to solve the problem across the board. And so I thought it was an interesting set of points he made. And, you know, everyone saw the reaction, which is that HSP suspended him and then fired him. And there was a good amount of, you know, senior people who had been around the block. They worked in different areas and they just, you know, they, they felt the need to say it. There was also a lot of young people. 
And what I found interesting was that there's no young people that I saw really or younger ish who were really defending it as much because I think most of them are they feel they have more skin in the game. Right. So you feel a bit more impatience, you know, about the lack of results. If, you know, every year you see ESG assets increasing and they're increasing alongside like emissions. Right. Like they may be more likely to sort of say, wait a second, like we're going to end up eating the cost of this. So we should probably ask tough questions. But it wasn't uniform across the space. And I think it's it's good that, you know, I think the players that embrace the debate earliest are the ones that, first of all, by definition, are probably not greenwashing. Right. Because, you know, and they, so therefore they have incentive. They want to clean up the space so that you don't have every, everybody saying they're doing the right thing. Right. Otherwise, it looks like organic fruits 30 years ago in the grocery store where like if no one actually regulates what it is to be organic and suddenly customers want it, like everybody puts a sticker on. And that disadvantages most the, the actual, you know, producers who are actually going through the trouble to make an, you know, an organic fruit that, you know, is probably more costly. And so I think what, what you have in the industry now is a debate emerging. And I think the most interesting and exciting thing are the players that are doing the right things that have the ingredients we need, uh, embracing the debate of saying, like, like any industry, it's not an indictment that it's all needs to disappear, but it, it needs to get better. And, you know, like anything, evolve. And I think one of the challenges will be, you know, that the large firms, the people there can't actually say these things, right? I mean, behind the scenes, they'll tell you they agree with nine out of 10 things, but they can't say it publicly because it just runs against the interests of the firm overall. And you'll hear that all the time from people in in that space. Uh, But there are pure play, you know, this is similar. Others are pure play who have a lot more room to, to stand up and, you know, and not have to worry about sort of legacy businesses or conflicting interests. Now, let's say that the government carbon tax. So there is a penalty mm-hmm. for externalities. So start taxing the externalities, the negative externalities, mm-hmm. and give incentives to invest in those new positive solutions and enforce reporting so that you get away from greenwashing and you actually have to report on the externalities, both positive and negative, that a business uh, creates. So let's assume that that's, the government does its part. Mm-hmm. Would that change your view? I mean, does sustainable investing and impact investing, does it play a role? If you can back entrepreneurs with fresh capital and you engage and work with them, you have a long-term thesis, private, there's no question there's additionality there because if you didn't do that investment, it wasn't like, someone else was going to appear and do it, right? It, it may never have happened. So it's very much unlike sort of just shifting around publicly traded shares. And I think in that area, you have both the ability to create, you know, obviously systemic impact is going to require trillions of dollars changing direction. But, you know, in that sector, you can meet the demand from investors who do want, you know, there's a lot of investors who do want to back things with impact. If all that money gets siphoned into ETFs and all I liken that to the indulgences, the Catholic Church practices, the indulgences where you kind of pay to feel less guilty, but you know you're not really yeah. changing anything in the real world. I think if if that if that demand could be funneled into vehicles that even would let retail investors back the kinds of things with additionality, that would be a win, right? Because there's a real demand for it from investors. There's a great return thesis. You know that that's that's good for the world. We buy companies um, and we are active owners. We go in and we go into the board and we help the companies develop their strategy plan. So there is a difference between passive investing and, and active investing. If you're a passive investor, you can you, you buy the share or you, or you can sell the share. And what you're saying is that it doesn't really matter that much whether you, whether you sell the shares or, or, or what you buy the shares. 
So we look at what companies we buy, and that's the intentionality. So you can have some intentionality. Why did you buy these shares? Why did you sell these shares? So we evaluate that before going into a company. Is this a company that we see can add something positive? So that's the intentionality. If that's all we did, you know, that might not change the world because anyone can buy those companies or buy those shares. So it's really what, what you mentioned, the word additionality. Additionality is one of those interesting terms that it's sometimes used by people like academic side. It's almost like I remember the first time I heard it, I thought, oh, this sounds really complicated. And then I realized it's really not. It's just, you know, it's the idea of like, did something additional happen by me making this intervention? So if I buy this fund, did something additional happen? And I think I think to most people, they probably just think of impact as being that word, although obviously it means different things to different people. But yeah, it's, it's the public market side where if you sell it, by definition, someone's buying it. You're not providing more capital to the company by you know, buying the share. You're just giving money to a seller of the share. I mean, Microsoft hasn't issued shares since 1986, right? So like, you know, it's very difficult to, to, to really do much there through the, through the public markets. And I think you know, that, that's the, the, the key piece because I think the public markets, the, the idea is that if you sell it, you'll deprive them of capital. And I always found that idea bizarre because number one, you know, uh, I was a distressed investor. It's where I learned to invest. And so we, our whole thing was we had long-term vehicles to invest in, you know, things that people were selling for irrational reasons, whether it's a crash or they think it's unethical. And I think secondly, like that's just how the market system works, right? Nobody leaves money on the table. Otherwise the market wouldn't work. So if oil prices are going up, you know, just because good people don't want to own those shares and profit from it doesn't mean that someone won't. And I always tend to say, if something's legal and makes money, it'll find a way to get finances. So as a result, you don't really have any additionality. But I really do think the intentionality is critical. And then the, you know, the act of going in and working with the management teams, providing fresh funding that would not have otherwise happened or capital. I mean, these are all the components of unlocking the kind of innovation and scale for, you know, for businesses that we need. And particularly, you know, ones that often can catalyze greater growth. Because I think on the private side, you're able to do things that may be perceived as more risky, that are maybe smaller, you know, they're just earlier stage. And I think often you'll find that those are the kind of deals that then can scale up, you know, and eventually reach the point where they, they access public capital and then there's something there. To give you a practical sample of how we do that in, in Summa, so we have selected a few problems that we want to be part of solving. One of those problems is, is waste. Waste is a gigantic problem. And it, it is close to 10%, 8 to 10% of climate gas emissions come from our waste. And uh, it's a resource problem as well. And of course, if, if the world is going to really be sustainable in the long term, we need to go to a more circular economy and get rid of waste and recycle. So we have developed our thesis on what's the theory of change to get to a circular economy within 2050. So where are we now and where do we need to be? And what's that change that needs to, to happen? And then we have uh, acquired a few waste and recycling companies. So we have Norsk which is the largest one in, in, in Norway. And the strategy plan that we have formed and how we act, so we own the company. So as we decide who's on the board, we work with the company on, on and management on the strategy plan. So how can Norsk be part of that theory of change? So aligning its strategy, and that's where we put capital behind. So we put capital behind going to net zero, 
we put capital behind increasing the uh, the circularity and, and the recycling degree in that company. So that's an example of additionality. Yes, we bought Norske Envening with the intentionality. We need to solve the waste problem. It's one of the best recycling companies and most sustainable uh, recycling companies. And then the additionality is forming that theory of change and how to how to put that into the strategy and uh, put real capital behind that change. And ever so, what's what's great about what you described is that if you look at that and you compare it to a passive, you know, fund that's just taking an an ocean of already traded shares and and slightly changing the bucket of you know what they give each person to get a fee bump they couldn't be any more different, right? I mean, you know, in terms of every step of the process of the investment process, the intentionality, the additionality, the timeline, you know, those are opposite ends of the spectrum. And I would say that, you know, what you just described, we need more of happening in the industry, whereas the public markets, the ETF and passive stuff just literally does nothing. That's the concern I have, right? Is that if, if the ESG space is all of those things, I would almost say it's incumbent on people in the industry to step up and say, hey, like, we have to self clean up a little bit because if everybody claims to be green, then, you know, eventually everyone loses faith in the system. Rina and Tarek, let's just specify the difference between ESG and, and impact. How would you define it? Impact is really about creating outcomes. So what we measure in our companies is what's the core of their business and how do they impact externalities environmentally and socially? So it's really the outcomes that the companies create. ESG, I look very much as the input, so the check the box list, or you know, what you report on and what kind of policies you have. And all companies, oil and gas companies, everyone can, can, can do all of that and say they are a leader with ESG and even be classified within sustainable investing and responsible investing. But ESG does not focus on outcomes. And that's where it should. So these th- two things, I think, should be the same. But then we need to measure outputs and outcomes. I think as ESG could be a data set, it could be a better way to understand risks and, and other things, but it's not really focused on like driving outcomes per se. The one challenge I do find with the space is that, you know, this conversation even, I don't know that most people are clear on that, right? I mean, sometimes you'll get people and they'll say, oh, no, you know, people are criticizing ESG because they say it's this thing, but it's really that thing. And they'll go into some arcane sort of, you know, framework. And the challenge is, you know, in some sense, if the public doesn't really know what either of those mean, then it, you know, it's not really what people think it is, what it's what exists in the market, in the marketplace. And I think clarifying that definition, the way you just did, is actually useful. I think a lot of the public hears ESG or they see it on a fund and they think it has impact. Even if, you know, we wouldn't say that it does and maybe even the fund itself doesn't make that promise in the fine print, you know, you can imagine the average millennial seeing the ESG fund advertised and, and believing because, they, you know, there's no way for them to know any better that if they buy it, it's going to make a difference in the world. Even if, you know, technically you and I might sort of say, well, that's really not the purpose. And even the fund creator would admit that if not putting it at the headline. Yeah, and, and Elon Musk was out sort of debunking ESG because Tesla was taking off the index, right? And he says, you know, why don't all these other car uh, makers that are on it, why don't we measure the outcomes? I mean, Tesla at least have zero emissions, right? And the other ones not. Like the reason the, world, the world's talking about ESG so much is because you know, the public wants to see more done in environmental and social issues, right? In particular, climate change and inequality. And so that I think that's the big reason that it's grown. 
Tarek, there's another area I think is really interesting that some people still today can, you know, accuse of being a fluffy factor, but, you know, purpose, the connection between purpose and profit. And, and I think recently uh, we had, for example, George uh, Seraphim from HBS on the pod, and he's studied uh, this relationship between purpose and profit for, for many, many years and, and recently published a book about it too. And he says that, of course, purpose is not something a, a leader talks about in a, in a speech a couple of times a year, but it's rather the lived experiences of the people on board of a company and, and how that purpose, how it is diffused and also the clarity that it brings to everyone and, and the sense of agency that they get because of it. So once you adopt that, he says, of course, in many ways, you will find this strong synergistic relationship between purpose and profit. So do you agree about that? The point is true that purpose is important, you know, as sort of, as you just defined it. And I think most leaders know that. But I think that to change the economy in a way that there's genuine purpose, you know, not in the sense of some, something like impact or, or being a positive force on the world, you can't change that overnight. And so what happens is you give this message to people of Patagonia and they say, yeah, like, of course, we know that. That's great. And they're already kind of happy. And you give it to KPMG and a bunch of big companies and they can't change their stripes overnight. And so what this ends up becoming for them is largely marketing right? You know, you say, okay, well, we have this business, right? Like what's the CEO of KPMG going to do? Like change their business so that they're like suddenly saving the world? I mean, really what it ends up being is an internal drive to to help employees, you know, understand how their work is, is meaningful and is connected to a bigger thing and so on and so forth. All of that is great. But a lot of what I've seen, and this is just a caveat to that idea, is that people can add marketing purpose a lot faster than the economy can change to you know, build models that we actually need for the future. And so in many, many cases, the purpose thing just becomes really just the green paint, right? You know, where companies, they're not like, not like being dishonest with their employees, but they're putting a positive shine on their marketing and PR externally because they've always known that that clearly has financial ramifications for clients, suppliers, the public. And then they've just started doing a lot of that internally, right? Because they've realized, oh, it actually matters for our employees too, right? They need to feel motivated and so on and so forth. So I think it's a great idea in some, but, you know, the question I would ask having seen up close is very many times that's implemented in a way that almost just seems to convince employees that they're doing great work, you know, and that their company's amazing, even if it really hasn't meaningfully changed in any genuine way. I completely agree with the, with that, Tarek. And we also had Christian Sinding, the CEO of EQT, one of the largest private equity firms on the podcast uh, quite recently and and he uh, he was describing a lot of you know how to make and create EQT and what they do around around the purpose and he's done a brilliant job in making that happen so i think the only way to do it is as you know it has to be lived it has to be clear to the organization what you don't do and what you do and everyone in the organization will have to see internally that that they're living the purpose if they're not, it would better not to have that purpose because people get so disgruntled when you put it as a marketing slogan and, uh, and you, you say it externally and everyone see that the, the saying doing gap is so big. If you see every single year, not just your CEO says these are really important things, but all CEOs do and everybody at Dabo says and all the leaders do, and then every year you see emissions rising, you can't be surprised that Greta Thunberg gives a blah, blah, blah speech, right? I don't know if you saw the one, like, I think it was last year during COP26 when she gave the speech where she actually 
I thought it was amazing. She started quoting leaders. You know, Macron said this and that. And there were all quotes about this is the most important issue. We need to solve this. And uh, clearly nothing's happening. And so she just would quote their lines and then say, blah, blah, blah after them. And the, and the crowd of young people would cheer. And what you could see happening was like, I'm not sure that Greta Thunberg is an expert on capitalism, financial markets, but she's very right to say that I don't know exactly what's going on, but I see leaders saying one thing and then another thing actually happening. And you get a lot of people really jaded. And I think that that happens, that's happening across corporate employees, certainly in North America. So what we do in, in our companies, so all of our companies, when we buy them, have to define their purpose. And then they have to lay out which are the key stakeholders that are impacted by that purpose. Uh, and then they have to create the strategy plan and, uh, and the theory of change that they are going to, to be on. And then put the KPIs that will measure whether that purpose, are we going towards that purpose and, and the vision that you're set for, for uh, the theory of change. So we measure it as well. So we try to make a very specific link between the purpose, the stakeholders that are affected by it, and uh, the KPIs that will tell you whether you're moving in, in, in that direction. And that drives behavior and the decisions in the companies. And then suddenly the employees start seeing that this is for real. But what's really interesting about it is that, you know, you'll be doing it as an investor. And if you're doing it as an investor, you're talking to the CEO and you're talking to the board. That's where it needs to be. I think there, if you have that built in and there's intentionality and it's discussed, I do think that actually will matter. And I contrast that with what I've seen in a lot of companies where that is not sitting at the, you know, the board and, and the shareholders. It's really a marketing strategy. Tarek and, and also Rainier, I'm, I'm asking myself, you know, what I'm hearing is really that, that for example, private equity, having direct investments in companies and, 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 and can drive this impact much more and stronger also through being purpose-driven. And I'm also hearing that, you know, government changing rules in some countries might happen sooner than later, but in most it won't. And we've concluded that big investment firms with ETF products will still continue to have these kind of placebo products around. They will not stop doing that. So what, what is actually giving us hope apart from great examples from, from uh, like private equity industry? It's a good question. I mean, the biggest thing that I'm optimistic about is the changing of the narrative. And, and that's something bigger than the, you know, any product or any country or any system. It's a broader narrative on how capitalism should be organized. And I think for many years, we think we're seeing capitalism, but I would argue we're seeing neoliberalism, which is sort of a, a version of capitalism that has an extreme faith in the markets to solve all problems and this is the important part, even without government guiding it. And I think I would disagree with that because I think capitalism is extremely powerful, but just like a sport, every sport has referees, there are referees and rules. And, you know, every credible economist has always known that you need to sort of regulate those externalities through a political structure that has democratic legitimacy. And I would say that where I'm getting confident is I, I do see attitudes swinging back and shifting to the idea that the government needs to lead. Uh, and I think that the COVID, the pandemic helped drive that. So one of the things in the study in, that we did was Canadian University, we studied Canadian and American public attitudes. And we found that in the U.S., in the first six months of the pandemic, there was a large swing in people saying, hey, government needs to lead on this, right? Because, you know, there are issues that are systemic crises and that, you know, and obviously a pandemic is one of them where government has the tools and should be leading. 
and their government didn't do the greatest job in the beginning, nor was Trump obviously taking it very seriously. But the public understood that the apparatus they needed was that apparatus. And I think that that shift in attitudes, particularly in the U.S., is critical to our global chances of success on climate change. Because the more you have people realizing that systemic crises require systemic solutions, flattening the curve requires inconvenient changes today, you know, to avoid the curve getting out of control, all, all of which we understood with the pandemic, the more likely we are to get a push where sometime this decade you see a big regulatory push to regulate these things. And you're starting to see some of them coming in the U.S., notwithstanding, obviously, the political deadlock. And so that stuff, I, I should think, is, is really positive. And I think that that debate will probably shape this decade in Western democracies. And, and if we, you know, I think that holds the key to, in many ways, addressing our challenges. I completely agree. And I, I'll be very practical in, in, in making an example of, of what you're seeing and, and how we at SUMA are working. And so, as I mentioned, waste is one of the problems I really want personally to be part of solving. And we have the largest waste and recycling company in Norway. And if you look at sort of that theory of change and where we need to, to, to get, we are now looking in SUMA, not only that we own Norskenvinning, but how can we drive that recyclability in uh, in, in Oscar Winning? So we have tested out several technologies and have invested in recycling technologies. We are we are now scaling up a quite revolutionary waste to energy technology that has full carbon capture. And the government in Norway needs to do its part as well, because suddenly now if we are going to make this commercially viable, there needs to be a carbon tax on the current incinerators for waste. One ton of waste creates one ton of CO2. So if, uh, if there's no penalty, if the cost doesn't go up for the incinerators that emit CO2, if government doesn't put that externality, which is a cost to society, on the business, we are not able to compete with this new technology. So I think this, what I see in, in Norway and waste, which can be copied globally, we can solve the waste problem. We, uh, we can make it zero emissions. We can increase the recycling rate from a few percent to, to over 90%. The technologies and, and the solutions are there. Unless government actually do its part, it's going to be very, very hard to drive that change. If they're willing to do it, we will do it with Norsk Envening. We are anyway investing in it. And we also need to put some of the cost on consumers so they change uh, behaviors. We need to force more industrial partnerships so we can make circular value chains. And we are already now in discussion with some of the larger industrial companies in Norway to do that. So we made the plan. It's a clear view on where we need to get. We can do our part and we are doing our part, but the government needs to do its part. Capitalism isn't working without actually the government doing its part and coming with a stick and the, and the penalty and also the incentives, and uh, starting to tax externalities. Here we are, like both sort of investment, private equity type backgrounds, capitalists, and we're both saying, hey, look, the government needs to come in and intervene, right? It'd be like a sport where we're saying, look, we want to encourage clean play, right? That's what the world needs. It, it need, doesn't need dirty play where people are fouling and kicking each other. I mean, that's not, that's not in the public interest. And we're players who are saying, listen, call, we need to call on the refs. Right. The refs need, you know, the government needs to come in and enforce these things. That conversation is not happening in the U.S. enough yet because business leaders, it's just not in their interest to ask for I mean, when does Wall Street ever ask for regulation? Like, There's no chance. Right. And so they're out there sort of 
con- trying to convince the public it's not necessary. And I do think that the leadership that comes from sectors of the community, you know, globally, whether it's by country, by you know, business type, whatever, making this argument is something that regulators and politicians and the public will listen to and they'll have to pay attention to, right? Because if you have capitalists saying like, you know, they don't say give regulate us unless there's a very good reason. And a number are starting to step out and say, look, like capitalism can't survive and the planet can't survive unless we're honest about the need, you know, to have government come and play a role that again, the business, the private sector doesn't normally invite them to, to play, but in this case, it's, it's clearly necessary. Your work now is as CEO of, of Rumi, an education tech charity that you founded back in 2013. So what made you start it and, and what is it for and who's it for? So, you know, um, you know, I, I founded it originally in, in 2013, as you mentioned. And so I've always stayed involved, even though really it's 2013 to 2017 is when I was sort of doing it fully and building it up. And the it just kind of came out of a, a bit of a personal story, to be honest. I had done tech banking to start my career in t- Silicon Valley just over 20 years ago. And because I'd been a programmer, I was always interested in tech and telecom. And I'd worked on investments to bring basic mobile phones into emerging markets, into places like Kenya, which is where my, my parents were born and raised. And you could see the power of that as a leapfrog innovation. And so some years later, as people started upgrading the smartphones and including in emerging markets, and you know, to give you a sense, there's now six and a half billion smartphones in the world, you could see the potential to use that to leapfrog access to learning, right? Because if all these people around the world, including in many environments where they never had great libraries or computers or anything else, they suddenly have a smartphone, the marginal cost to deliver them free learning contents next to nothing once the infrastructure has been built. The real idea is that you could bring learning in a cheap and personalized way to communities that are offline and underserved. Really, it was a tech startup through and through, but with a nonprofit model because it uses crowdsourcing and, and you know volunteerism to support it, like sort of like Wikipedia. And I think really where it's landed in the last few years is that, you know, I'd left at the end of 2017, went back to finance. The team is fantastic. They were looking closely at the data and they started to realize that the key to actually getting people to use their smartphones for learning content is that you have to make it engaging because, you know, in a classroom, you're a captive, you're a captive audience, right? If you go into the classroom and a teacher closes the door, you got to sit through a 60 minute lecture, right? Even if you find it boring, but if that 60 minute lecture is digitized and it's suddenly a video on your phone, which of course is what happened for most people in the pandemic in the last few years when schools closed, that's not a, you're not, that's not a captive audience at all, right? You're suddenly competing against Mark Zuckerberg and TikTok notifications and so on. And so the, in the last few years, the team really evolved the solution to one based on microlearning, and the results are just incredible. It's microlearning, but a lot of the model is using the explicitly to try to use the mechanics of social media for good, right? So how does social media engage people on their phones and get them to keep picking them up? I mean, one of the things is that you get a dopamine rush every time you do a six-minute session on Instagram. Well, it turns out you get a dopamine rush also if you learn something a discrete skiller concept. And the research shows that microlearning is more effective, you know, in short snippets than, you know, than traditional models. Having a model where there's skilled volunteers and partner organizations creating great learning content, what we call bites or micro lessons, and coaching them on the formula to do it, which is integrating memes, animated GIFs, you know, really cues from social media that make it fun and light which is kind of like, you know, the difference between watching the news and watching John Stewart or Trevor Noah, right? Like you're not losing intellectual content. It's just becoming more interesting and funny and engaging. 
what we're finding is it works extremely well. So you get learning gains. 88% of learners say that it competes with their social media time, which is not something we expect. We, we wanted to use the mechanics of social media. We didn't think we'd actually be substituting it. And it's now growing exponentially. It hit a million learners a few months ago. It's, it will be doubling every five months now. It seems to be working particularly well for disengaged students. Fantastic work. And uh, I'm just thinking, how do you track, so to say, the impact of that? It's almost like a T structure. You would have millions of people using it, but then you know you kind of go deep on the stem of the T and, and with a certain number of them. So there's a community of learners that use something called Discord, which is like Slack for young people, as my summary. And so the team you know, works with the community both to get feedback, right? That's really important for any tech org. You have to understand what the users like and don't like and keep tweaking it to get better product market fit. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that then it's used to track impact. And so, you know, you can get long-term outcomes over time. And we're already starting to see some of those and all kinds of stories of people getting jobs and other things through, you know, they're really upgrading their life, your job life and career skills on the platform. You know, what's really interesting is that we even track proxy variables So the learner can't tell you if they're going to get a job and their life's going to be better in three years because of this, because they don't know yet. But what we do know from the research is that if you're more confident, you know, you're more likely to apply and successfully get a job in this research showing that. We know that the more engaged you are as a learner, the better results you get. I mean, these are all things that are proxy variables and all of them we're finding are moving significantly with the community, right? They use stuff and then they're more confident, they're more engaged and so on and so forth. And so we're really confident that, you know, the impact we're seeing now, you know, will continue to play out over the long term. Tarek, if we go into some kind of helicopter mode now here and just ask ourselves, you know, what what do you think the world needs most right now? I think that the world really needs an honest debate about what's going to be required to address the environmental and social challenges we have. And that difficult and honest debate has to be uh, has to be honest about the areas where, you know, requires sacrifice, where it may not be against some of our own short-term interests, because it's the right thing to do. And I think that my gut it tells me that that hasn't happened yet, right? Is that, you know, people all want us. I'll give you an example. I'm going to take a dump on Canadians because I'm a Canadian. There was a study a few years ago that showed that Canadians, 70% of Canadians want aggressive action on climate change. Uh, another study at the same time showed that the majority of Canadians don't want to pay $10 a month to make that happen. To give you an idea, Netflix was $9.99 at the time. And so you have people sort of saying that they want to solve these problems, but then also like if you actually ask them to reveal preferences, if they want to pay more for burgers and other things, they're not really sure yet. And I think that's the debate that we probably need to have is that solving our problems is going to cost money. It's going to require tough challenges. And the debate we should be having is who's going to pay for that. Right, I, I would argue older generations, people who benefited from the system, probably going to have to pay a bit more. We're not really having that debate because a lot of what's happening now is sort of just preserving the status quo. And I think that the fact that that debate is, is starting is great. And I think it just needs to, you know, we need to push faster because if there's a clutter of misinformation, it's going to slow our response. As a main takeaway for the people who are listening right now, what do you want that to be, Tarek? I think the most important thing is that people feel emboldened to to speak out about this and encourage that debate. And I would say especially younger employees, right? Younger folks have a particular strength in order uh, in, in, in their ability to think about employee activism 
and you know pressuring their own CEOs and senior management who may be, let's be honest, less incentivized to make the substantive changes because again, you know, their incentives are maybe short term, right? I mean, that's the way the system works. And I think I would say that we need to spark that debate. And I think that younger people in particular are going to be critical to 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 pushing it within their companies and broadly. And Rainer, what do you say about the main takeaway from your perspective? And well, I think it was lovely that Tarek sort of called the bluff on the whole sustainable and uh, responsible in uh, ESG investing space because there is a lot of greenwashing and uh, and bluff and that and that's what I think you know we all have to do and and every employee can if they do feel that we're not living the purpose that the marketing division usually as Tarek says has has developed you know then call out so I think we need to be bold and uh, and call a spade a spade and uh, be honest about it only then can we really have a discussion on what does it take to solve these challenges. Great advice and great sum up. Thank you so much both for this conversation. It was really enlightening and uh, an important one to, to have. So thank you so much, Tarek, and thank you, Rainier. Thank you. Well, thank you. And thank you, Tarek, for being on the podcast. This is Summa and Friends, the show that inspires and guides you on how we together can create a wiser future. Listen to unique leaders and experts exploring the challenges we are facing and revealing their stories about the solutions and how to get there. Episodes are released bi-weekly on your favorite podcast platform. And the week after, we release an in-depth blog article to help you capture the core ideas from the dialogues and how you can help move things forward. Summa and Friends is a podcast for people with the courage to care for a wiser future. To find out more, you will find links and show notes on summaequity.com slash podcast. Hey, thanks for listening to the show. We hope it has inspired you to reflect on what you can do to contribute. And to make it easy for you to find and listen to this show again, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And please share this episode with one person you know would benefit from hearing it. I'm Vesna Luca, and you've been listening to Summa and Friends. And until next time, live with purpose and be the change you want to see. Mm-hmm.